I am Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined in the studio by Forrester Vice President and Group Director Carlton Doty. And on the phone, we have Nader Ghaffari, co-founder and CEO of Venture Scanner. Welcome to both of you, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Victor. Uh, excited to be here and uh, share insights on, uh, on the startup markets and how it impacts corporations. So let's start with that very point, which is what is happening in the startup world right now with all the energy around AI and yet an increasing amount of context around industries like fintech, insurance tech? What is happening? Sure. Um, well, you know, if we think about it from a corporate lens, uh, and by corporate, I mean, you know, the Fortune 1000 multinationals, Really, every industry has a giant wave of startup innovations happening. Uh, you know, if you look at financial technologies that impact the, impact the banking sector, you know, you have, we have over 2,000 startups um, that are innovating and impacting that industry. If we look at artificial intelligence, uh, which cuts across uh, horizontally across all verticals, again, we have 2,000 uh, startups uh, innovating and attempting to bring opportunities into that market. Uh, and so literally every market that incumbent large corporations are in have these waves of innovation happening. And so it's, it's paramount that they, that they have a uh, sense of what's happening, uh, understanding the trends, uh, knowing the companies, uh, and generally staying abreast of the, these things so that, you know, that they can, take advantage of the opportunities and, uh, and also, uh, you know, uh, play defense a little bit as well and stay relevant. I just add that I think, you know, what we've seen over the last certainly five years, maybe even going back 10 years is, you know, as we talked about the wave of digital disruption as much as 10 years ago, the cost of capital comes down, the cost of innovation comes down and we're seeing startups just flood markets, whether it's FinTech or retail tech or MarTech, um, at little cost and from anywhere in the world, frankly. It's not just about Silicon Valley anymore. We all know that. It's Boston, it's Chicago, it's Salt Lake City, it's India, wherever. Um, so these startups are, are coming into market with new ideas, with fresh solutions to problems and trying to disrupt markets, whether they're AI or fintech or retail or, or what have you. And in that five-year period, Carl, are you seeing any changes in the survival rate of these startups going from angel funding all the way through growth, whatever whatever stage they may be in, because the cost to enter is so low, therefore more enter, uh, is there a different way of thinking of survival rate of when they actually are become viable entities in the marketplace? Well, if anyone can do it, not everyone can succeed, right? I mean, the cost of entry certainly is low, but uh, the more and more startups we see coming into these various markets, I think just the math works out, the success rate is going to dwindle, right? So if I'm a corporation, if I'm a head of innovation for a Fortune 1000 company, how do I find the right startups that show the most promise, that meet the parameters or the business outcomes that I'm trying to drive? That's becoming a harder job for our clients. So I imagine one of the challenges is the hype of that startups can be producing around the technology or the solution that they have, right? The marketing of that solution and then the actual, you know, technology that underpins the solution that they're having. Or is it vaporware? How are people um, or VCs in particular understanding the distinction between those mm. two items? It's mm. a great question. I think that's, you know, that's the secret sauce uh, behind any VC firm is trying to 
decipher what's vaporware and what's not and what's a trend and what's overhyped. Um, I've talked to a lot of venture capital contacts, private equity bankers, et cetera. And they're really good at, at doing financial due diligence, right? Looking under the hood, uh, taking a look at the books at some of these companies. Do they have the right cash flow metrics? Are they, are they growing? Are they adding customers? But what they don't necessarily have is the domain expertise of the specific market that they're looking at. They don't have an AI expert, perhaps, or they don't have someone who's really deep on blockchain, right? So um, matching these two things, the financial due diligence with, you know, the real hype-cutting domain expertise um, is imperative to make some wise investments here and make sure that you're not throwing your venture capital at vaporware. Mm -hmm. So I guess to that question, and going back to what Nada you said earlier, which is you're, when you start breaking down the startup world, you kind of did an interesting thing. Your first take on was fintech. So that's a banking thing, let's say. And then it was AI, which is horizontal. And of course, then there's firms that do AI for fintech. And so how does a VC value differently a horizontal play like AI that may or may not have resonance in different industries versus something that is strictly within banking but is higher relevance smaller addressable market in theory? The VC world, you know, first kind of looks at it from a general kind of taxonomy. Like if we say an industry like banking and then kind of classify that as fintech, uh, and we look at all the various functions around the, uh, the uh, sort of banking brokerage industry, anything from payments to lending to retail investing, all of these will have lots of different kinds of uh, – startup activities on them that are innovating. And then, you know, things like AI kind of cut across these things and bring a, a unique lens to them. But but part of the, you know, part of the uh, discovery process for the VCs is if we look at each of these smaller functions inside of a domain like fintech, let's say, let's take retail investing, for example, what are all the players out there? How are they uniquely differentiated? Uh, and how do you bet on the right one? Uh, the one that popped over there uh, was Robinhood, which uh, which kind of brought a new uh, kind of approach to retail investing um, uh, without commissions and, and, and kind of wove in the crypto space. And, you know, how did they find that early on? What was unique about it? Uh, and so you kind of, you know, you break it down into smaller chunks, look at the breadth of players out there and um, and see what's unique about them. And the horizontal technologies kind of add a unique differentiation when you look at it at the vertical aspect of it. From purely an exit strategy standpoint, so I'm a VC, I'm obviously trying to, to grab the hottest entity I can that has, to your point, Jen, something real underneath the hood. <laughs> but I also have to look at exit strategies, both the velocity of and the valuation of. Is there any difference that we've seen in your, in your world that says industry-oriented entities, like say in fintech, retail tech, or insure tech, whatever the blank techs are, they perform differently than horizontal plays like blockchain, like AI, like VR, whatever it might be. Yeah, I think maybe the way to think about that is, is, is ultimately the, 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 the exit strategy is going to be, you know, will the startup gain enough market traction, whether it's in an existing market or a new market that's emerging, uh, to have an exit? Uh, and, and sort of the market tractions will differ. You know, the Robinhood example I gave uh, well, that's a retail investing consumer application. Uh, its exit potential 
you know, whether it IPOs or gets acquired, is going to be demonstrated by consumer adoption uh, in in the market. Whereas if we look at a a, a more horizontal uh, technology like artificial intelligence, and let's take a you know, let's take an example there, like a company like Data Robot uh, inside of machine learning platforms. You know, they build technology to help any company build predictive models. Uh, well, that you know, that's that's a different kind of um, you know, it's it's a different kind of uh, adoption. But in the at the end of the day, it's still adoption, right? And so they're going to go B two B and sell B two B. And so the exit strategy there is, well, are they going to gain enough traction? With the uh, with the B two B side of it uh, to demonstrate some success to to either IPO or get acquired, is there anything in the data that you're looking at, Nader, that says people are progressing from angel funding all the way through at a faster clip, so slower clip? Is there anything different in this environment that would have been different than five years ago, ten years ago? That and I'm going to get to the larger question about how corporate development should look at this from an acquisition standpoint or an ecosystem standpoint. But is there anything different just in the environment unto itself? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, absolutely. I mean, let's stay on these two. Let's just stay on these two topics that we keep bringing up, AI and fintech. It, you know, in AI, if you look at it, funding in 2016 for the AI ecosystem was $4 billion. 2017, $14 billion. 2018, uh, we're going to cross $16 billion. Uh, where's 2019 going to be? Uh, what's the opportunity here? I mean, like, this is explosive financing growth in that market, uh, you know, and, and, and the bet is that, you know, with all this data out there, uh, we're going we're gonna to be able to leverage all that data and drive automation and predictive modeling and so on. If we look at fintech, same thing, uh, 2017, $22 billion. 2018, $40 billion. My sense is next year is going to be even higher for, for fintech uh, because a lot of these fintech companies are now getting into the later stages of their development. And so more dollars are going to be, um, you know, put into that market. Uh, and so absolutely these, the, you know, the growth rate in these, in, in these markets as measured by levels of financing are, are, are really, really, really fascinating. Is it at the expense of other markets? Or is, is the well, pie growing or is this is it just shifting? And that's that's a key part I wanted to bring up here. When you start looking at these numbers, these vast financial numbers yeah. across these markets, there's a lot of variability across specific industries, across the specific horizontal technology categories. Um, the name of the game here is pattern recognition at this point. Whether you're a venture capital firm or you're someone in corp dev or a head of innovation, being able to recognize these patterns and figure out what stage in the, the quote-unquote life cycle a market might be in is part art, part science. Is it still really, really early stage with a lot of VC money flowing in, or is it starting to mature where the private equity guys are now starting to throw some money at it and try to get returns out of it? Those are important patterns to start to see if you're making financial investments in some of these markets. One of the patterns that you've identified, Carl, is that money is moving from at Tech Martech and to these other areas. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So we just published a predictions piece this year um, uh, for 2019. And, you know, I, I started to see this pattern in the Martech and ad tech space specifically, uh, you know, a, a market that's near and dear to my heart. Um, we've seen some of the drop off in VC funding. There's thousands of vendors out there, thousands of startups in Martech and ad tech. 
Um, and you know, when we see deals like Adobe Marketo now, um, it's clear the private equity guys have moved in. It's clear consolidation has been happening for a couple of years. If I'm a VC investor um, and I've got you know a hundred million dollar fund or whatever that number is, and I'm looking across a couple of different markets and trying to place my bets on where I can get the biggest bang for the buck, probably one of the last places I'd put that dollar right now today is Martech and AdTech. That market has it's matured. We, we've kind of that ship has sailed. So I was in that that frothy market for a while, and we were never constrained by privacy rules. They existed. We were never constrained by them in real terms. It was never a GDPR that hung over people's head with with real financial penalties associated with it, which at the size of a startup could blow them up. How much is the privacy regimes like GDPR or like the state of California put in or others have affecting the investment patterns here where people have to prove that they can exist in a privacy-oriented world or a world where cyber threats are simply just, you know, sort of increasing at a constant pace? Yeah, uh, great question. I think the, the answer there is GDPR and privacy regulations in general is causing marketing leaders uh, at Fortune 1000 companies, even mid-sized companies, to take pause on their marketing and ad spend. We've seen digital ad spend start to change over the last couple of years, particularly with the largest buyers like P&G. Um, I think GDPR just sort of adds fuel to that fire. So once the venture capital- has like deflationary fuel. Deflationary fuel, right? Mm-hmm. People have invested a lot of money in marketing technology and ad technology over the last five years um, to use it, to build their MarTech stacks, right? Now they have these stacks. Consolidation has occurred. The Adobe's and the Salesforce's and the IBM's of the world have kind of gobbled everybody up that matters, so to speak. Mostly, yeah. So now they're hitting the pause button and trying to rationalize and integrate these platforms to get more efficiency out of them. So it's a different, it's a di- bit of a different problem. So as the VC and private equity guys see that change start to happen, that in turn slows down the VC and private equity investments in that market, right? And that's what we're starting to see now. So you just answered the MarTech question saying it is harder to be a startup and it's harder to get acquired because you have to pass the privacy and security test. Am I compliant with standards like GDPR and can I defend myself against hostile security threats? You could argue that same logic applies to AI and blockchain because they're both very data-hungry environments, both AI and blockchain. So to those two things, privacy and security influence how those markets are evolving or at the pace or nature of them being acquired? Well, so unsurprisingly, security technology is one of the fastest growing categories we're tracking right now in partnership with, with Nod or Adventure Scanner. Um, but interestingly, investments in AI are not slowing down at all. I think AI is in that stage. And by the way, AI isn't a single technology. We all know that. Um, but you know, there's computer vision companies. There's natural language generation. There's, there's all different forms of, of AI, whichever... Uh, form you want to talk about there. But while money is still flowing into that market, I think the age-old rule here that um, any startup worth their their weight in in gold, so to speak, needs to be needs to solve a problem. They can't just be a technology searching for a problem. They've got to be identifying a problem that they've solved with a specific solution they've designed, whether it's computer vision or natural language generation or whatever it happens to be. And that's why the investments are going into that market, in my opinion, because there's a lot of problems to be solved there. And it's not just about MarTech or ad tech. It's operational. It's 
predictive modeling. It's it's all kinds of things uh, that we talk about in the in the guise of big data or systems of insight. Yeah, Carl is spot on. Uh, I would only add, um, you know, if you think about a, a, a startup, there's it's this broad term we use from a couple people that are precede all the way to folks that are super late stage mezzanine financing and and really, you know, uh, at the initial formation phases, even in the early stages of startup seed, Series A, uh, companies are running fast, they're breaking rules, uh, and not necessarily paying a lot of attention to having to stay compliant uh, with a lot of these, uh, you, you know, new uh, regulatory regimes. Uh, but certainly as they get, you know, more mature, they have more dollars at their disposal, they have more resources at their disposal, uh, and so they can certainly then at that point sort of tackle it. Uh, and the beauty is uh, they have other startups trying to solve these problems, you know, in a frictionless way. And so uh, when, when a startup matures to the point where they have to uh, start to worry about regulation and, and complying, otherwise they really will get in trouble, they can't break rules anymore, uh, the beauty is there's a whole, you know, there's over 500 now in growing reg tech companies out there that are trying to make the process as easy, automated, and smooth as possible. Meaning that those regulations have actually spawned another sort of market. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Yeah, they are. Uh, and, and, and they're weaving in a lot of automation uh, efforts where it takes the, uh, the heavy burden off, uh, off people's plates where possible. This is a good day for regulators because they begin to be market makers. Like this is a this is the best version of them that we've ever had on this podcast. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, I'm going to switch the conversation now to ultimately the buyer. So in any of the markets, it doesn't really matter where you look, there's this crisis of innovation. And the argument is, I don't have enough digital skills. I'm trying to advance my firm, become either you know digital first or a technology company itself, trying to compete in a digital world. I build my logic in thirds. A third of it, I'll, I'll work inside and do myself. I'll build. A third of it, I'll go outside and partner. And a third, I'll buy. So the last two thirds will look at the startup market for opportunity. How are they seeing this world unfold? This is um, this is an acute problem that I'm running into with a lot of our clients. They approach this problem in a number of different ways. Some of them set up innovation labs and kind of carve out some people from the operation and say, this is your job now. And they let them go, I don't want to say play, but they kind of let them go and, and innovate and, and try to solve problems. Others are setting up their own venture funds. I've run into many large insurers and financial institutions that have just, they're going it alone. They set up their own venture arm and they actively seek for startups to either partner with or invest in. Some of them send, you know, the chief digital officer out to Silicon Valley for a couple of weeks and just go network with go accelerators and yeah. startups, right? Um, no matter what the approach is, most of them are sourcing their startup referrals in whatever markets they happen to be investigating from contacts they have at venture firms, contacts they have at private equity, contacts they have in those accelerators. The problem is any referral you get from those sources is coming with a financial interest from that source. So finding unbiased advice to cut through the hype and to really do a deep dive on these markets has become a challenge. One of the things you said there, Carl, was that more companies are acting like VCs themselves, standing up their own portfolios. Mm -hmm. And I was with a senior executive who was saying just that. And what he said was, it's easier for us to handle it this way because we ultimately don't care, in theory, 
about failure because we know within a portfolio of 20 companies, X amount of companies will fail, Y will succeed, and we can wait for that carnage or wait for that outcome and then make a choice about acquiring them. But until then, I'm simply the investor. Is that kind of the motivation in that? A bit, yeah. They're finding they're 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 searching for that one success out of 300, right? I actually talked to a large national insurer here in the United States who has, uh, I believe, it's a hundred million dollar fund. They assess 300 startups per year, and actually invite about 10 per year to come in, maybe set up shop in a shared space and start to innovate. And they might find one, they might find none who actually has, you know, a legitimate solution that they want to invest in. But that's 300 a year, $100 million that they're looking to invest. And even a company like that, who's kind of put the logistics in motion, has a hard time finding real investable solutions out there. In the Toronto financial world, mm-hmm. they have a sort of a shared entity that does a lot of that VC work for them. So it's not unique to a company. It's not exclusive. Mm-hmm. It's really trying to create an environment where ultimately the companies can take advantage of a hotter market. Are you seeing more industry cooperation here or are you seeing much more that there's sufficient maturity in each company and sufficient capital in each company that they can actually be their own VC? I think the way to um, to think about it is, you know, there's not every – company in the Fortune 1000 or the global multinationals are the same, right? If you look at a company like Google or Intel, they've set up pretty wide uh, tentacles out there to, to do startup scouting, to understand the trends in these startup markets, uh, to discover companies in various stages of formation, and to kind of keep track of this stuff in an ongoing way, right? If you look at Intel Capital, uh, it's a massive organization, and, and and they're doing a lot of work in the scouting efforts. And some of them, you know, uh, will will mature on to uh, to to acquisitions. And a lot of that sometimes comes in inbound from the business units. But then there are lots and lots of corporations that don't have any infrastructure set up uh, and don't have any sort of formal process in doing this. And, and the point Carl made earlier was spot on. It's it's the lion's share of organizations that have no infrastructure set up that typically innovate in a biased way. And how do they do that? Well, they take a referral from a VC they know, or they sponsor an incubator and look at the companies in that incubator, never getting a full understanding of where the markets are going, never getting a full understanding of the startups in that market and how they're uniquely differentiated and going through that process. So it really depends. I mean, not all not all global corporations are behaving the same, uh, you know, and, and each of them kind of needs a slightly different uh, model. But the model that ultimately they all need to kind of come back to uh, is how do I do this in an unbiased way? And how do I, how do, I do it ongoing instead of as a kind of one-time project? Because innovation isn't a one-time project. To stay relevant in today's world this has to become part of the DNA of these multinational corporations. They have to know the trends, know the companies, stay current daily. This can't be, let me go sponsor something and call it innovation. One of the items that, that you guys are hitting on is, is sort of the industry plays here. And in it, the argument would be that banks, whether it's the innovation officer or corp dev, whatever, whatever the entity is, 
is now going to be a technology buyer. They're going to buy technology firms. Insurers are going to buy technology firms, retailers, transport companies, whatever they might be. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty new phenomenon. How are they doing? How are they doing? Yeah. In terms of success rates? Yeah. D minus? <laughs> maybe, maybe that's generous. Again, this question, I think uh, it really depends on it. It's across the board. Some are doing, uh, some are doing well. I mean, if you look at like a company like Facebook, uh, their brand today uh, is getting totally tarnished. But they had a, uh, you know, they had they had a great uh, uh, scouting and innovation effort where they were able to find and pick up WhatsApp. They were able to uh, pick up Instagram. Uh, and it's those two platforms that are that are driving a lot of the growth. While, while Facebook is seeing a lot of negative negativity uh, hit, you look at a company like Google again. You know, they picked up uh, YouTube when it was very early on, uh, and it's a it's a it's a continues to be a very important and growing piece of their revenue growth. Um, you look at you know GM picking up Cruise uh, a year or two ago to kind of help jumpstart. Uh, some of the efforts going on in their autonomous vehicles. So there are successes, uh, but you know, uh, there's also uh, there's also uh, a lot of failures out there where uh, where it's not done in a uh, in a strategic way, and um, and ultimately the wrong partner or the wrong investment or wrong acquisition happens that isn't strategic and doesn't drive that promised growth. Yeah, even in your example, Nader, you know, Google has acquired a lot of companies, as has Facebook. They're, that's a process they know well. There's going to be wins and losses along the way, but there's a maturity in that operation. Well, they're also digital native. I feel right, like so they, they, right. they're yeah. buying right. things that they understand, right? right? Oh, that's totally right. Yeah, that's why you know, uh, that, you know, what, what Carl and I, this partnership, it, it, you know, this scouting service that we're launching is to, you know, like I said, you know, there are companies that they, they, that have the infrastructure. And there's companies that, that, that need to set up the infrastructure to do this right. And so uh, our mission is to go to the world uh, in 2019 and help every multinational have their tentacles out there to know the trends in the startup markets, to know, uh, you know the startups that are relevant to them, uh, and to ultimately um, to, to jump forward in this innovation uh, front. So, Carl, you, you graded him a D-. You are a nice person, but D- is a hard grade. I'm assuming that that's a, that's a real grading thing. on a curve. Grading on a curve. Is that because of lack of infrastructure? Or are there other dynamics at play? Because this is a hard challenge to acquire it something is. that is different than you are. It is, and uh, I wanted to make a point here. And I think the the business objectives of the corporations, these large corporations that are trying to make these kinds of investments, are as diverse as the startup ecosystems they're investigating, right? It kind of depends on what what the end game is that you're trying to to achieve here. And I'll use an example. Um, take the company uh, Adidas or Adidas, depending on where you're where you're located. Um, a few years back, they were watching all the strides that companies like Nike and Under Armour were making in digital engagement with with consumers. Right. So, what did um, Adidas do? They acquired a company called Runkeeper that kind of gave them that that digital platform. It was a little startup they bought back in 2016. That company, you know, most of the uh, some of the resources that came with that company are now part of Adidas Digital, right? So there's an example of a company that they just needed to go out and acquire some talent in a in a consumer digital platform. That's not necessarily right for every company. Some companies are looking for new revenue streams. Some companies are looking for a specific technology to solve an operational problem. 
So there's so much diversity here in what you can achieve through these kinds of investments. Yeah, that was going to be where I was going to go, which is you could argue that someone is saying is I need to have a matching capability to whoever innovated to my left or to my right. So I'm mm-hmm. going to actually going to buy their IP or their capability. Another one says I simply can't get talent. And an aqua hire using my balance sheet to bring on talent is simply the best and fastest method. Are you seeing that portfolio approach, which is some are going to be on the higher side, some are going to be on the IP or capability side? Mm-hmm. I, I see that as certainly a common business objective. But the biggest challenge that I hear from clients in almost every conversation that have gone through a process like that is not finding a startup. But once we find the startup and we go through that process, now how do we onboard them? How do we integrate them into our business? How do we avoid the culture clash that can occur between a large enterprise and a small, tiny company coming together? It's an irony, I think, that people are going to say, I'm going to do an aqua hire because I want someone who's not like us. Right. They bring a startup culture, a voracious appetite for growth, and a complete fearlessness about the marketplace into these companies that are more conservative, well-governed. Slow. And they say, slow. <laughs> I'm buying you because you're different. Then they buy them and they come and say, be like us. Is that what's happening or are, are the culture surviving or, that interface? Yeah. yeah. It's a large part of what's happening. In some cases, these companies, they'll, they'll try to keep them separate. Maybe they'll, they'll, similar to Adidas, treat them as, well, they're our digital arm now. But still, it's like a separate company operating within yeah. a company. Um, I don't think anybody's really cracked that nut in terms of best practices on how to, you know, how to do an aqua hire successfully and, and integrate with the cultural and human factors that, that come to play. So we're in an environment where the cost of capital is still low, that the angles that I can go through, whether they're horizontal or vertical, seem infinite, because every, every industry is innovating on the technology side right now. And the demand for these capabilities and the demand for talent is just escalating. These are high times. In 2019 and 2020, how does this play out? What, how do you see this playing out in terms of the startup world and companies' ability to really take on these capabilities and pull? Yeah, that's a great, great final question, Victor. The way, you know, the way I think about it and it's, you know, the, the way I talk about it uh, when I meet with uh, executives and uh, innovation officers is that every passing day, more and more innovation is being done outside of the four walls of large corporations. And in order to stay relevant, uh, both from an offensive and defensive perspective, they have to build out innovation programs that span the corporation and that they are actively monitoring and finding these opportunities. It's, it's, uh, it's paramount. I, I just add, I mean, completely agree. And I would just add that I think uh, those corporate, those same corporations are going to need outside help. They need unbiased advice. They need market intelligence to show them the universe, the complete universe of the markets that they're going after, not just look through a keyhole at that universe uh, that's controlled by their their who's who network out there. So exciting times indeed, gentlemen. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Thank both. you. Thank you. Forrester's 2019 predictions are here. Download the guide at forcom slash predictions 2019 to uncover the major dynamics that will impact your business in the coming year. Again, that's forrcom slash predictions 2019. Thanks for listening.